Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson, and for more than 10 years, I've overseen our patient safety, risk, and quality membership programs here at ECRI. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today's episode is part of a series we're recording for the ECRI and the ISMP Patient Safety Organization's Deep Dive Report. This year's Deep Dive focuses on issues of racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare, and we're talking to our PSO members and others to hear about their initiatives to fight these disparities. Our guests today are from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, serving Pennsylvania, Southern New Jersey, and Delaware, and the Fraser Family Coalition for Stroke Education and Prevention that focuses its work on helping the community in North Philadelphia. They'll discuss an initiative, Advancing Health Equity and Stroke Prevention Through Collaboration, conducted by the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity and the Fraser Stroke Coalition in partnership with Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Temple Hospital. We'll talk about how the collaborative's mission is to leverage health as a catalyst to help Philadelphians reach their full potential by addressing the drivers of health and health outcomes and how these efforts fit into larger programs to fight inequities. So to get us started, I'll ask our two guests to introduce themselves. Hi, um, thank you for allowing us to be here today. My name is Dr. Sandra Brooks and I'm a gynecologic oncologist by training uh, with decades long um, experience working with communities and health systems to advance health equity. I'm the chief medical officer of the Center City Division of uh, Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals and also the executive vice president and chief community health equity officer. My name is Dr. Neva White and I am the executive director of the Fraser Family Coalition for Stroke Education and Prevention. My background is a nurse practitioner, and I've been here at Jefferson for about 21 years. So Dr. Brooks, we'll talk in a second about the Collaborative for Health Equity. But first, I wonder if you can help us set the stage a little bit. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction that Jefferson serves patients in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware. Um, can you describe a little bit more about you know, the, the area that you serve, the patients that you serve? Uh, and importantly for today's conversation, some of the, the major barriers to equity that you see? Certainly. Uh, so you may be aware that uh, Jefferson Health expanded from a three hospital system um, just about a little bit more than a decade ago to now what will is a 14 hospital health system and will soon be an 18 hospital health system. Uh, clearly quite a large footprint. Um, my, the area that we're focusing on today is the Philadelphia region and specifically North Philadelphia region um, with um, the zip codes of 19121, 19133, 32, and 19140. And the reason we have um, aimed to focus on those zip codes is because we, and the reason we're looking specifically at cardiovascular disease is because we know that cardiovascular disease accounts for about 24%, nearly a quarter of the total deaths in the city of Philadelphia. And we know that there's wide disparities in outcomes between those individuals that live in those specific zip codes 
compared to zip codes just about two to three miles away. So um, really we're aiming to focus on the area where there are the greatest disparities, but we know that when we work in partnership with our communities, we will um, develop understandings and collaborations and uh, know more about what works so that we can apply those learnings to our other populations as well. Uh, so, you know, can you describe uh, a little bit about some of the real barriers to equity that you see, maybe particularly in those zip codes that, that you just read, that you just mentioned? Right. I mean, and, and uh, you know, health equity has been um, amplified this past year and the drivers of health equity uh, have been amplified by the pandemic. But these issues have been longstanding and are complex. So if you think about the CDC pyramid that talks about the drivers of health, at the base of that pyramid, where, which has the largest impact, are those things such as poverty, education, housing, structural racism. And these are things that we know that given uh, decades of policies that have disproportionately disadvantaged black and brown communities, specifically African-Americans, um, uh, that have led to concentrated poverty in a number of areas. You can draw a, almost a direct line to areas that were redlined back at the turn of the century and how poverty has become concentrated in those areas. So we know that that's the largest driver. And then you go to the next level of the pyramid that relates to policies, public policies. So right recently, our Department of Health has mandated that healthcare workers become vaccinated. That's the example of the type of policy that can drive and reduce health um, disparities. So other things such as immunizations, what we've been talking about with the COVID-19 vaccination, interventions that can be done. At the top of the pyramid are where a lot of healthcare systems sit, sit, clinical interventions, counseling, and education. So what we're aiming to do with Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity and specifically the Fraser Coalition, we're aiming to address each part of that pyramid uh, in order to be able to narrow the gap in health disparities. And before you mentioned the Fraser Coalition and Dr. White, I'm going to bring you in in just a moment. Um, but you know, I wonder if we can. What's been really interesting to me as we've talked to some some folks is is something that you just pointed out. You said in a previous conversation that we had, you know, leading up to today, right? A person's race and zip code should not play a major factor in determining their likelihood of, you know, surviving any number of chronic or acute conditions. But we know that is the the reality we're living in, um, and it's been really interesting to me to see healthcare providers try to move down that pyramid that you just described, right? Because as you said, most of them maybe are sitting at the top focusing only on clinical interventions. What sort of, um, as you came at this problem, was there a point where you can, can look to and say, okay, I, I really um, know now that there is a role for the healthcare provider organization to try to get at these things that maybe historically we've thought of are sort of out of our lane, right? They're, they're, that's a public policy thing. That's not a healthcare thing. Was there a place where you can point to you say, no, no, this is a place for healthcare to be involved? Right, and, and I think, um, you know, there clearly have been, you know, a, a great precedent of people involved, not only in healthcare, but also in public health. 
uh, who've recognized that these are the drivers of health. I think that the challenge has been what tools do we have at our disposal to address those drivers, right? So you know, a number of your listeners uh, are very clearly deeply steeped in quality and safety work, right? So if we're aiming to reduce mortality or reduce admissions or reduce um, adverse events in the hospital, if our patients are coming to us at a very advanced stage of um, where they haven't had access to screening or primary care, you know, the amount that that the health system is going to be able to intervene and reverse that course, we, we recognize. Now we have the data. We can see, right? Um, but I think that, um, so, you know, with uh, the evolution is the is the understanding that we not only have to capture race and ethnicity, but we also have to capture a w wider actionable items, right? So is education, is there health literacy component? Um, you know, does the person have social support at home? Uh, does the person have access to a primary care physician? Is the person able to communicate? Um, in, are we able to communicate with that person in the language that they feel most comfortable? So I think with um, greater access to data, greater ability and depth of understanding of what drives some of the disparities, we can move um, beyond um, categorizing race uh, as the driver, right? So we know that if we have 10 factors that we know drive health and we're able to measure those factors, but now we still see a Delta. Now we could might, we might make the assumption that that Delta might be the structural policies or might be bias that is involved. But until we have a greater understanding of all of those other factors, I think it's, it's really short-sighted for us to solely look at race and ethnicity um, because really um, what of that is actionable, right? So I think that for those, um, uh, we definitely need to be um, uh, develop a greater cultural sensitivity and awareness. I think our ability to do social determinants of health screenings are helping us to get there. Our ability to do implicit bias training, ability to make sure that we have a diverse and trained workforce, all of those things will help us to get closer to our end goal of making sure that we're understanding the perspective that the, that patient uh, or that individual comes to us with and help to be able to meet their needs in a more holistic way than we have in the past. So Dr. White, let's get... Um... I'd like to sort of talk a little bit now specifically about the the Fraser Coalition and and narrow in on one one area that we're working on right, which is um, on uh, reducing the risk of stroke. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about uh, the coalition, the initiative that we're talking about, and in particular, what are some of the the things that the coalition is leading on to reduce the risk of stroke for the you know for the affected population. Yeah, so the, the Fraser Family Coalition for Stroke Education and Prevention is made possible through a gift from Andrea and Kenneth Fraser. And Mr. Fraser was born and raised in this community. So this is really a full circle moment for the community being able to have an individual who was born and raised in this community and now giving back to the community. The other very uh, important aspect of this program is that we're working with two major health systems. So we're harnessing the resources of, of Jefferson Health as well as Temple Health. And we really wanna target stroke risk factors for prevention. So we wanna do it from a chronic disease self-management perspective. So our programming is really focusing on how we can help people to better manage their hypertension, better manage their diabetes, 
prevent diabetes, weight loss, and doing that in conjunction with providers, so to be a clinical support, if you will. Then our team of community health workers are serving as credible messengers in the community so that they can directly address social determinants of health and really build these networks so that we can just not only give people information, but we have a direct connect to these organizations that we're working with so that we can put a face with a name and sort of understand what that process is gonna be when we introduce people into these services. The other thing is that we really wanna build on our existing community relationships. I mean, we have uh, so many years of experience, both health systems. So how can we build on those relationships? Because we know that we can't do this alone, but how we can work together to really look at reducing stroke in North Philadelphia. How important are those, those relationships? Because I've heard this from some other folks too, to, to have those existing in the community relationships. Um, how, how important is that to be building on those as opposed to say, you know, if you parachute it in and we're starting from scratch? Well, I, when you look at community organizations, the history, the history that they have in the community, and in many cases, residents from the community actually work and live you know, right there. So building community trust and getting to people that we may not traditionally be able to get through, through some of our current marketing strategies, really getting almost like a block by block outreach, if you will, into the heart of the community. And also to be able to hear the community voice in a way that it can be heard. Because many times people, you know, they have issues, they have problems, but getting that information out in a way that it can be understood and that we can move on it is very important. And, and our community organizations have been doing that for so long. And Dr. White has raised a very important point that, you know, in a lot of this work, um, we need to work with trusted messengers. Uh, and um, if you just even take the vaccination efforts as an example, there are oftentimes there's so many ways that people can get information. It can get become overwhelming. And we know that there can be a lot of myth, mythology out there or disinformation. Uh, and working through trusted messengers is a, you know, a very uh, valuable way to be able, it's bilateral, right? It's, it's not only we're providing information to people because we have all the answers, we need to hear from the community about what the community needs and how the messages resonate with them so that we can develop a strategy that's maximally yeah no that again that, that that makes a lot of sense to me and, and it's something we've heard from other folks and i guess sort of the next to me the next logical follow-on from that then is well if i'm an organization as you described earlier dr brooks that is only sitting at the top of that pyramid um and is not maybe as deeply embedded in the community as as they need to be to have those conversations effectively and to listen as well as they're speaking um you know, is it fair to say that they they need to start like immediately right now yesterday in identifying those folks and, and building those relationships and starting to starting to sink those roots in if they haven't done it yet? Because maybe 
maybe it's not going to help next week, but it's going to help a year, five years, 10 years from now when whatever God awful thing we're dealing with in 10 years that they've built, they have taken the time to build up those roots and communities. Absolutely. And, and I think sometimes what it means is connecting the dots, right? So for a lot of nonprofit health systems, they really uh, are already doing work in the community that helps them to maintain their nonprofit status. But that work may or may not align with the strategic objectives or priorities of the quality and safety program or of, of, the, of the hospital operations. Um, and so part of this is to try to look at the resources that you have, look at the, the scope of what, you know, what you're trying to achieve and try to align those resources so that you can be maximally effective. And also um, there's a there's a, not a small part of this that means being humble, right? Be willing to admit that perhaps the approach you've taken in the past has not been the best one. Um, but, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of innovative things that are going on, you know, collaborations with federally qualified health centers that have really been doing this work for decades. Um, uh, you know, working with, uh, you know, well-respected community organizations that represent, uh, you know, very diverse populations. Uh, and so I think, you know, just the substrate, the ingredients are, are there. You just really need to have the right recipe, but recognizing that it's an iterative process. And if, if I could just add to that, we have a community advisory group and it's a very diverse group. Uh, we've got probably about 25 organizations and residents represented. And I'll tell you, it's, it's been invaluable because even in how we define the community, um, you know, Philadelphia is a lot of neighborhoods. So people are very particular as to how you address their neighborhoods. So having that insight from our advisory group and just how we may have an idea of how we want to approach a particular topic or how we want to reach out to people, our community advisory group automatically tells us whether or not they think that's a good idea or not. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that's all related to, um, Dr. Brooks, a phrase, a phrase that you've used before. And, and I think this sort of also touches on, on something that you were describing earlier, but it's that, that idea of a health ecosystem Right, so it's not just the immediate presenting clinical concern, but it's. Um, I wonder if you could explain a little bit more what you mean when you describe that idea of a of a health ecosystem, and and how addressing that is part of the the larger initiative to again to get back to our theme to try to be fighting against these disparities in in, in and inequities. Right. I, I think that part of this, uh, again, um, if we think about if the ultimate goal is to provide uh, for the health system, probably, as Dr. Clasco says, it may be considered a misnomer because we are taking care of, in acute care hospitals, we're taking care of people who are not healthy, right, who come to us uh, with a particular um, condition. So the health ecosystem as it has existed for some time has really rewarded or incentivized um, you know, health systems to uh, take care of very sick people uh, and has, less, has had less emphasis on how can we prevent um, people from becoming sick 
in the first place. And I think there's obviously growing recognition, emphasis and, and um, support for advancing those things that help to prevent people from um, uh, getting quite so ill in the first place. Uh, and so a recognition that uh, it's not only building bigger and better, but also providing support through patient navigation, through community health outreach workers, through um, having the infrastructure to assess the social determinants of health and be able to navigate people to the resources they might need to either have access to medicine, to have, ac have access to safe housing, to have access to heat in the winter or to or, or um, healthy, nutritious meals. So, uh, you know, there's, we're not there yet, but I think that the, uh, a more responsive ecosystem recognizes that in order to make a significant um, improve we, health quality and safety uh, do not necessarily accordingly equate with equity, right? And so I think we recognize that we need to have a more holistic strategy in order to truly um, approach health equity and to achieve the safety and quality that we really um, aim to have for our communities. Mm -hmm. Does that sort of help to yeah, provide? Yeah, very it? much so. Um, uh, before, before we move on, there, there are a couple other things I want to ask about, but, but Dr. White, I don't want to forget to ask you um, about the role of the, the Collaborative for Health Equity that interfaces then with the Fraser Family Coalition for Stroke Education and Prevention. So can you tell me about the, the collaborative and, and how, how sort of all that fits together? So the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity is really our overarching community outreach, community health okay. hub for Jefferson Health. And it is directly, and it directly supports the work of the Fraser Family Coalition. So it's our overarching, if you will, look at um, health equity by design and from a systems approach, looking at really looking at those upstream factors that, that when we talk about health equity. So we have the Philadelphia Collaborative Health Equity at the top, and then Fraser Family Coalition is one of those initiatives. So if I could um, amplify uh, on that as well, I would say, you know, we're, in, we're looking at the work of the Collaborative for Health Equity in about four different buckets. One would be considered that capacity building, where we work with community organizations to amplify the work that they do. Um, so whether it might be a group that's working with with teenagers on trauma-informed care and help them to develop um, resilience. It might be a work just helping to uh, make a neighborhood safer and um, in some way, or uh, helping to connect people to mental health services or trauma prevention. Um, uh, we also do conduct trainings. We're looking into how we can improve digital access. So that would be an example of uh, capacity building. Another example would be that tangible infrastructure where we would have a very defined program like the Fraser Family Coalition, or we have a health center in South Philadelphia, which is serving a very diverse community that has a large percentage of immigrants um, and really is really designed to be so welcoming to that community. Uh, another area would be the cl clinical preventive outreach things that we do in the community related to screenings 
where we um, are really aiming to work with our community health outreach workers and our community-based um, uh, folks to help to navigate people to care. And then the other area would be our policy piece, where we're working and collaborating with a number of uh, um, not, uh, nonprofits and governmental real, uh, agencies to really look very upstream at how we help to promote policies. Um, an example would be community health workers. Um, it's a, it's a, a, a field that uh, people can come through from a variety of, 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 um, of other fields or they people who just live in a community who really very much very passionate about their community who want to be able to help. We look at them as the connectors, but yet it's been a challenge to make sure we have the type of training and really have certification that's recognized that people get paid adequately and that there's a career ladder. So all of those things require policies. So again, that's an area where we're not only helping the healthcare community and helping the people in the community, we're also um, providing uh, valuable work and improving workforce development. Um, Dr. White, you know, I sort of mindful that we're recording this in the late summer, early fall of 2021. Um, so we've been at this pandemic thing for about a year and a half now. How has that impacted the work you do through the through the Fraser Family Coalition, both the stroke, uh, both, you know, both the specific thing, but but more broadly, how has that impacted all of it? <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, just all of it. <laughs> yeah, so interestingly enough, in 2016, we really started to look at distance mm -hmm. learning because we saw other barriers that people had in terms of, you know, getting on the bus, and, you know, childcare and all these things. So we started creating a distance learning platform way back. So we were well positioned for the pandemic to move everything to an online platform. However, we still struggle because we know that many people, there is a significant digital divide and many people still don't have access to the internet. People don't have um, some of the skills that they need to navigate the internet. So we're working very closely with individuals to help them to get the tools that they need, not only get the tools, but know how to use them and feel comfortable in using them. And the other thing that we're really trying to promote is access to telehealth, because we know that many people during the, at the heart of the pandemic, I guess is the best way to say it, did not go to see a provider because they were afraid and many of them were not in a position to even access telehealth. So we really wanna promote that opportunity for people to feel comfortable with that, feel comfortable with learning online and you know, being able to share that space. One of the things that really was exciting for us, and this was early on in the pandemic when we were having our diabetes prevention programs online, we found that it was a source of support. Uh, it's particularly when it was a lot of social unrest around March, April, 2020, we really found that by having that place to go, people felt comfortable in connecting because many people were isolated. So being able to get on a Zoom call with 20 other people, just to kind of feel like you weren't alone. So we wanna kind of, preserve that feeling and that safe space for people in this sort of uh, virtual learning environment. And then, and then Dr. Brooks, one last thing I, I wanted to 
sort of pull on a thread you 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 raised very early on in our conversation was about um, COVID nineteen vaccination, and obviously that's been you know again we we've had vaccines available for nine ten months now, and that's been a huge source of um, concern about hesitancy and the inequity in the rollout of the vaccine and how do we how do we um, you know do this combination of convincing folks to get vaccinated but also make sure it's available in a way that they can you know receive it and if we need a second dose that follow-up can be such a challenge for all the same reasons that any kind of follow-up care is a challenge so I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about some of what um, you and, and your team at Jefferson have done to try to really increase access and availability, well, I mean, not availability, but to increase the access to the vaccine um, and, and to reduce hesitancy wherever we can. Right, so, so it has been definitely an evolution. So in the beginning, um, when the vaccines were somewhat scarce because of, uh, and the eligibility was being rolled out. We, we recognized that um, there were some inherent potential inequities in that rollout, right? So if you are, we recognize that um, African-Americans were disproportionately more likely to be hospitalized or be in the ICU or die from COVID-19. Uh, but yet the original um, rollout was for people 675 and above. Uh, we recognize, well, if the average age of, an Af of, of life expectancy of an African-American is 68, what, who's going to be in that initial population? So we were able to utilize our access to um, our patients who were enrolled in my chart um, and to be able to look at uh, and be able to make more those invitations more equitable with a, a bit of an oversampling based on the risk of the population, right? And we also recognize that, that my chart, which is those folks who had access to the EHR um, and their records on the electronic health record might also be a subset of people. We also in parallel had to develop uh, a more boots on the ground approach of inviting people to become vaccinated. Uh, we also conducted dozens and dozens and dozens of what we call real talk trusted messenger trainings um, and did that uh, through faith-based organizations, through nonprofit organizations, schools, retirement associations, um, civic neighborhood associations, SEPTA. Um, so a variety of, of um, folks to be able to help to provide uh, you know, real talk, really, to really directly confront the things that people were concerned about or what they professed that they were concerned about and try to provide some very uh, common sense, plain talk language about uh, what was um, factual um, and in an empathetic way. Um, and we were successful in really um, accelerating the uptake of vaccination with that, uh, with that approach. Uh, uh, over time, um, you know, uh, and we had to do a number of one-on-one. -on -one. We had, we worked with the Philly, um, the folks who were previously census um, takers who went door to door and we did some trainings because they were then converted into people who were going door to door to talk to people in different languages. So we conducted those trainings in multiple languages. Um, and so we were proud to work with Department of Health. We also had a group of very dedicated 
um, uh, mobile vaccination folks who partnered with Department of Health to create pop-up vaccinations. Um, just this past two weeks, we had a mobile vaccine party uh, where we did a, a parade down Broad Street, stopped at City Hall, you know, created a lot of you know constructive commotion <laughs> to raise the signal to noise about you know being able to vaccinate people. You know, just come in. We um, so and we have gotten better at how we make sure we have people have a follow-up appointment. Um, and so we've gotten, you know, better, uh, developed more robust tracking so that we make sure that people get their, their follow-up as well. And most recently now with the FDA approval and with um, the changes in the guidelines for the city uh, and with more and more um, health systems and organizations requiring um, requiring vaccination and then venues, quite frankly, requiring vaccination in order to be able to have access to different venues. Um, we know that the, the folks who currently are not vaccinated, you know, we, we, it's, it's a bit more of a challenge to get to that last mile, uh, but we are, we're, we're continuing to be persistent and we're conducting town halls in our hospital um, morning, noon and night uh, to be able to make sure that people have, uh, have access to up-to-date information. It's a, you know, that, that training you mentioned is so interesting to me because it um, it occurs to me that those folks who are the trusted messengers, well, you mentioned right there from faith organizations, uh, you mentioned SEPTA, which is our local regional transit, they, you know, uh, all those different places, they may be trusted messengers, but they are probably not um, virologists or immune disease experts or vaccinologists. Yeah. So giving them the information they need um, to answer the questions, to have like both accurate information but also information that will meet that that health literacy goal as well. Right. That, that's really interesting to me. And to put it into context, yeah. because there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all in um, context, right? Mm -hmm. So if people hear about an adverse reaction, well, let's talk about context because the, the severity of COVID-19 illness and in the unvaccinated is far outweighs the the risk or the severity of a side effect that you know the you know vast vast majority of people will experience so really providing to provide that context to people so uh as we wrap up um i'm going to ask you each to do something that's maybe a little unfair but I, I always like to ask people to say okay what's what's the first step these are huge initiatives we're talking about we're not gonna we're not gonna solve all these problems in, in an hour or in a day but we've got to start somewhere. So if I'm in an organization that maybe has not built the kinds of coalitions and relationships that you're talking about, um, but I want to, and I'm, and I'm leading, you know, a, a sort of, you know, a hospital system, an individual hospital, whatever, where do I start? What's my first step? And, and Dr. Brooks, I'll ask you to go first and then Dr. White. Sure. I, I would say that you know, for an individual, they should look at their span of influence um, and look at how could they examine health equity? How can they look at what they're doing from a health equity lens in their span of influence? How do they represent that perspective in every uh, meeting, every task force, every policy group, every committee? How do, can they do that? And when we're preparing and looking at implementing a policy, uh, understanding how that might um, either uh, help or hinder advancing our health equity. And I think the, the, the vaccine invitations is one huge example. And you know, when we initially had that 
when the initial discussions, there, that health equity lens wasn't quite there. And you know, there are a number of us who raised our hand and said, no, we got to look at this differently or we will wind up down the line with a, a process that was not intentionally unfair, but, were, look, but, but in, in effect was unfair. So I think that's the first thing. The other thing is to take an asset map, look at who's doing this work in your institution and look at how you might help. How can you be an ally? How can you show up? Right. Uh, I think, uh, you know, looking at how who's involved in the work that you're doing that does interface with the community is does that represent the community? Uh, I think that's extremely important because if those voices are not there, that perspective won't be there. Um, you know, in your own sphere, you know, vote, join, become involved, be part of your community, be a, a person who like seeks to get information in a balanced way, join a council and on a personal level, help a neighbor or an, or an elderly person in your community. You know, how, if someone's having difficulty, you know, I sort of get nominated as the, the navigator for my, fam my extended family. And it's, 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 a, it's a, a burden that I take on willingly because I think the health system is so complicated. And it does help for people to have a person that they trust that can help them navigate um, situations. So that's kind of how I would look at it. Dr. White? And, you know, I would say that we need to really think about cultural confidence and cultural humility. We're living in very interesting times and a healing approach to our work is very critical and allowing the people that we serve to really have a say in the interventions and how we work with them. Because listening to people and really understanding the reason why they're not doing something is just as important as the reasons that they are doing things. And sometimes it's just that it's things you, you know, the way I've been doing this all along in my traditions and my way of thinking, these are valid, these are valid things, but to embrace those things and allow people to even use some of the trauma that they've gone through. I mean, many of us have experienced you know, direct and indirect trauma in just this last year or so, losing loved ones and friends to this pandemic. And there's a lot of fear. You know, some of it's historical fear, some of it's real fear, and some of it could be false fear, but it is what it is. And I think embracing that and using that to guide us and to really help us to understand the human condition and just what we feel ourselves and what we're experiencing ourselves. Uh, because we're still in this, you know, we, we aren't out of this and there's more to come. So just being a little bit humble and, and healing towards one another. Well, I think that's a, a great place to, to wrap up. I think that's good advice for a lot of things, but especially for, for the topic we're talking about today. So um, I'll, I'll just, we'll, as I say, we'll leave it there. So Dr. Brooks, Dr. White, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. You can learn more about ECRI and the ISMP PSO from the ECRI website at www.ecri.org, where you'll also find our 2021 Top 10 Patient Safety Concerns Report, which features racial and ethnic disparities in care as the top issue. You can find out more about Thomas Jefferson University and the Fraser Family Coalition for Stroke Education and Prevention through hospitals.jefferson.edu. 
Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Visit us at ecri.org or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.